welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 108 for December 16th, 2020. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. The psychology of video games is a topic we've often covered on this podcast, and given how broad and deep a topic that is, it's one worth revisiting. I'm honored that today's guest will help us do just that. She's written, edited, and published multiple books, chapters, and papers about the psychology of video games. She's active on Twitter, YouTube, and Twitch. She's the research director at the nonprofit Take This, and she's the founder of Your Own Castle, a company that produces children's literature that empowers, educates, and inspires. Join me in welcoming Dr. Rachel Coward. Hello, Rachel. Hi, thank you so much for having me. What a wonderful introduction. <laughs> well, thank you for giving us some time on the show. And may I call you Rachel, especially after that horrible Wall Street Journal editorial this past week? Oh, goodness. Yes, you may. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So as I mentioned, you are an accomplished psychologist, especially at the intersection of video games. Your 2013 dissertation for your PhD was on the subject of gaming in a social world. So have you always been interested in the intersection of gaming and psychology? For as long as I can remember, I wanted to pursue a career in psychology. So I really wanted to be a therapist, actually. Um, from day one of my undergraduate, I was like, no, I want to get a degree in psychology. I want to be a therapist, which means I have to get a graduate degree in psychology. But my first day in my graduate program for my master's, we did like a mock kind of therapy session and I had this feeling that I was like, I definitely don't want to be a therapist anymore. It was really interesting to me, but I realized that it wasn't maybe what I thought it was going to be. Um, but I continued on with my master's program because it was through that I developed a love for research. And it was through that I realized I wanted to do this intersection of research and games. So it was a little bit of a process. Psychology was always at the core of it, but research came a little later. And do you find that you, do you still have opportunities to interact with, not necessarily clients per se, but do you still get that itch scratch? Because clearly it was there at some point if you wanted to go into being a therapist. Yeah, you know, mental health has always been so interesting to me. And, and when I continued on my master's program, a lot of people questioned it because they're like, well, you're not going to go and get your license and you're not going to be a licensed clinician. And I said, it's going to make me a better researcher. And I think no question it has because it has helped me gear my research towards research that has practical applications. And as you mentioned, I work with Take This, we're a mental health nonprofit. So now I'm really able to take my love for research and gear it towards creating resources for parents, for gamers, uh, and for clinicians. When I was preparing for this interview, I mentioned to somebody that I was going to be interviewing you about psychology and video games. This person who is not too familiar with either of those areas like you and I are asked, what does psychology have to do with video games? <laughs> How would you answer that question? Oh, that's a that's a funny question because one that nobody has ever asked me. So that's kind of a hard one to answer. I mean, psychology is at the root of everything that we do. And for me, my interest in psychology of games, as I mentioned during my master's, it came when I was seeing clients who were either playing a lot of games clearly in a way to fulfill needs that weren't being met in other spaces. So people who are playing a lot of games for social connection, right? To find people who have similar interests 
that they do and using them in a way that you wouldn't necessarily think about. They had that cluster of people and I had a cluster of concerned parents. <laughs> so for me, the psychology of games is really about understanding why people play and the impacts that it has. So working with the people, why are you playing so much online games? Is it because this is your social community and this that is valuable and should be validated? And to the parents, should they be concerned, right? Should they be concerned about psychological repercussions of playing online? When you say that video games are often played because a need isn't being met somewhere else, is that to say that video mm -hmm. games are a substitute as opposed to just being their own primary source for something? I think that it's both. Like Games are definitely a primary source for a lot of things like fun and stress relief and can be a primary source for social connection. Certainly has been over this last year during COVID quarantine. Um, I do think generally speaking, it probably plays a more supplementary role. You know, a lot of parents would come to me and they'd be concerned that their children, they would say they're playing too many games and they're socializing only through the game. And it's like, well, do they go to school? Well, yes. Do they talk to people there? Well, yes. Okay, well, do they have a job? Yes, assumedly with other people, right. Okay, so it's not their only source of interaction, right? It's just supplementing, it's, it's adding to the other activities that they're doing. And one of the areas in which you explore these topics is through your YouTube series, Psychgeist. Can you tell us a little bit about what Psychgeist is? Yeah, so Psychgeist was created to draw the curtain back behind the science of games. So as you mentioned, I have published books and I've published journal articles and I've given lots of talks all over the world. And, and for me, that's wonderful and great and I love it. But I've always wanted to get the information out of the ivory tower, so to say, to the parents, to the gamers, to people who are interested in, you know, what is flow or what can I learn from games? And just like the average person. So I created Psychgeist as a way to take that research take that information, the 50 years we've been studying games and bring it to a broader audience. I was going to ask you who the target audience was, and you sort of answered that because <laughs> I've read, or I've tr rather I've tried to read several books about psychology and video games or mm -hmm. taking an academic look at video games. And they are written for a very different audience from me, the casual reader. It, I sometimes find them impenetrable, which is in sharp contrast to your YouTube videos where I can sit down and watch any one beginning to end and feel like she wasn't talking over me. I got that. Yay, that's the goal. Thank you, Ken. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and, and with academic stuff, it, it does have to be written in a certain way. You know, I published this book, The Video Game Debate, back in 2015, and it's a series of, of scholarly essays looking at different video game effects, basically. Like there's a chapter on aggression and a chapter on addiction. And then I wanted to publish one which ended up becoming a parent's guide to video games, but in more understandable terms, like don't talk about, you know, the P values and the, the different statistical tests, like give me the broad strokes, a book that a parent or a gamer could read and be like, okay, do I need to be worried? And I pitched it to academic publishers and they were like, no, we want a book that's a hundred thousand words long. And I was like, no, that's not the point. So that that's exactly right. So the YouTube channel is to serve that niche. And you break down your videos into several broad categories like academic ramblings, research review, jargon schmargen, state of the research. And some of your most recent topics include the definition or look at girl gamer, escapism, mm -hmm. video games and moral panic, which, by the way, was my own undergraduate thesis. I loved oh, that video that you did. Nice. <laughs> I wish I could have done an eight minute video instead of a hundred page paper about it. I feel you. <laughs> so how do you choose these topics? 
It's, you know, it's a broad spectrum game studies, and it is hard to kind of narrow in and focus on one. I think when I originally started, I thought, what are the main topics I get asked the most questions about? And that's where the question about escapism, for instance, or what is flow? That was one of the first ones that I did. Girl Gamers came up because of that awful parade article that was published um, in that same month. I don't know if you remember it, but it was talking about. Oh, it was like top 10 games for girls. And it was things like Kim Kardashian's dream house. And, uh, you know, just like very stereotypical, just like, okay, um, girls play games and they play all kinds of games, which is what I say in the video, because I was just so infuriated by that parade article. And it also coincided with that release of, oh, that video, the video game, the full motion video game, Girl Gamer. Like the ads had just come out for that as well. Um, So sometimes it is topical. It's really motivated by what's kind of in the air. And I do also ask on Twitter sometimes, like, what do you want to see? And I've put, for instance, gaming disorder, video game addiction up in the polls many times, and it keeps getting voted out by other things. But I'm going to do it in January because I feel like eventually I have to address it. So I like to ask people what they want to see. Um, but I also know that like moral panic, right? That's a big question that a lot of people um, like to talk about. So I wanted to make sure and hit kind of the big notes. I still haven't done violence and aggression. I know that's like really the big one, um, but soon, next year probably. How much original research do you have to do for these videos as opposed to these already being things you've encountered in your career? I mean, I already have a general idea of, of a lot of them. I guess it depends on the topic. So with moral panic, Um, I've written about it before. I have chapters in my books about it before. So I've already done the legwork, so to say. I just kind of pulled it from the work I've already done. But things like Girl Gamer, that totally came out just from like the zeitgeist of of that particular time. And and so that required full-on original research to write and and produce. Do you find it difficult to condense these topics into relatively consumable pieces of media? For example, I once had to distill my 100-page paper on moral panics into a two-page version for a magazine article. And that was challenging. Yeah. I mean, academics are not known for being brief. Um, I mentioned the books earlier. So A Parent's Guide to Video Games was like the Cliff's Notes version. It was like, you know, maybe 10,000 words of a video game debate, which was 100,000 words. And I had the general outline in like a day and it took me a year to edit it. Like I am not good at being concise and brief. So it is difficult in the videos. I think that the advantage here is that I do a lot of shortcut editing. And so it inevitably makes the video shorter. So you can get a whole lot of information in like a 10 minute video. For those who may not be familiar with that term, what is shortcut editing? I don't know if that's the actual term. <laughs> it's maybe the term I just said. Um, but it's it's in a YouTube video where after you finish a line of dialogue, you cut it right there. So you skip all the pauses and you start it again at the beginning of your next line of, of your script, so to say. So you lose all the pauses. I did, a, um, I did a keynote lecture for the National Communication Association and I wrote it in a PowerPoint. And then I thought, actually, I'm going to make it into a Sightgeist video because that's, you know, more entertaining than a PowerPoint presentation. And what I had scheduled to be an hour talk turned into a 24 minute video. So that's what that kind of editing can do for the timing. Wow. That is a dramatic reduction. And so these 
videos are scripted. You're working off something that you've written out word for word. You're not improving as you get on the camera. That is correct. I improv some of like the jokes. Sometimes <laughs> I don't know if they're funny. They're jokes to me. Sometimes I improv a little bit, um, but they are 98% scripted. And you did say that the next one coming up is state of the research gaming disorder. And we've seen in the past couple of years, conflicting reports on are video games good for people? Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the world health organization has gone both ways. One saying mm-hmm. it's a gaming disorder. The other saying it's a great way to relieve stress and stay indoors during the pandemic. So I'm not asking you to scoop yourself, but can you give us a little sneak peek at what direction your video might, might go? Of course. Um, it's definitely going to touch on the frustration of, of that, <laughs> of, the, of the World Health Organization. Generally speaking, scholars are, are not on board with the World Health Organization um, designation of gaming disorder. And the video mostly talks about what the designation from the World Health Organization is and why scholars have contentions with that. I didn't think that there would be that kind of disconnect. I just as you know, I put my faith in the WHO. I assume that they know what they're talking about and that they've consulted the experts and they've come to a reasoned conclusion. And it sounds like in this case, scientists don't always agree on you know these more perhaps abstract topics. Definitely, especially when it comes to social sciences. Uh, there was a, a letter written, a scholar's response. That was written in 2018, an initial response to the World Health Organization saying they were going to add gaming disorder into the DS and to the ICD-11. And basically, like it comes down to the fact that there's not enough research. There's not enough research to suggest that gaming disorder in and of itself should be a separate clinical diagnosis. And the reason that's important is because, for instance, let's say it's a maladaptive coping strategy, right? People definitely use games in ways that can be problematic. But if it's a coping strategy for depression, but you're saying games themselves are the source of the problem, your treatment plans are totally different. Maybe you should be treating the depression. Maybe the games are the coping strategy. If you're treating the games and you take them away, are you then removing the coping strategy that these people are using to to self-treat their depression? So it's really kind of about teasing out, is there something unique about games that make them inherently addicting? And if the answer is yes, what is it? Because that research does not exist. Sure. I've known people who were originally diagnosed with having substance abuse and addiction issues, but it turned out that they were self-medicating to address undiagnosed mental health issues. And it sounds like video games can be used in almost the same way. Exactly. That is exactly the point. And and if that's the case, that's great. We also don't necessarily have, have the great base of research to definitively say that is the case, which is why I think there are still these debates. You know, even the American Psychiatric Association, who creates the Diagnostic Manual for North America, the World Health Organization creates it for most of the other parts of the world. But the American Psychiatric Association has not designated gaming disorder. They have it in the back of their book as a condition that requires further research. So scholars tend to be more, um, you know, happy with that designation saying, yes, okay, it's worth looking at. We know that some people use games in maladaptive ways. Let's do more research and see kind of where the, where the, where it lies. I want to go on a brief tangent because you mentioned ICD-11, and I used to work in the healthcare industry during the time when it was transitioning from ICD-9 to ICD-10. These, Mm -hmm. for those who don't know, are numerical codes that are associated with your diagnosis. So if you go to the hospital and say, 
I have a, I've cut my hand open. They're going to look up laceration and limb and they'll find that code and they, that's how they categorize it. ICD-9 to ICD-10 was much more granular. There were a lot more mm-hmm. codes. So specifically like where on the hand, which hand was the cut, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What did you use to receive the cut? However, this podcast right now is the first I've heard of ICD-11. Is it going to get even more granular? <laughs> I mean, I have no idea, and I and I don't even think it's out yet. I think it comes out in twenty twenty one, so oh, gosh. We, we will find out. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not in the healthcare industry now because I I gotta tell you, some of ICD ten was just too granular. I think they had a code specifically for hit by a piano, and I'm like, oh, wow, is this is this a Looney Tunes? What is this? No. <laughs> now they're gonna have codes for specifically where did the piano hurt you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> what, how many stories up did it fall from? Right. You know, was this a baby grand? Was it? What, 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 <laughs> so. so a lot of your videos I've noticed are about role playing games like Skyrim, mm-hmm. Final Fantasy and the like. Is that a particular interest of yours? Yeah, that's role playing games have always been my favorite genre. And it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that, Ken, because the more videos I make, the more I realized that my go-to video game references are all the games I played before grad school when I had time oh, to no. do such things. So I talk a lot. Well, Final Fantasy VI is my favorite of all time. I use that one a lot. But I, I tend to just choose like Zelda and Final Fantasy and Mario and, and the things that from pre-children and pre-grad school. But yes, I love role-playing games. They are my favorite. So that means you've missed out on all the great RPGs that have come out in the last like five to 10 years, or do you feel like you need to catch up and have some modern references in your video? Cause I get the ones you're talking about, but that may not be yeah. necessarily your target audience. That's true. And, and I've made more effort. I will say during quarantine, oddly I've had more time, which makes no sense because my children are home and not in school, but I, I do make an effort to at least watch playthroughs or become aware of like, you know, Stardew Valley and Hellblade and the Final Fantasy VII remake, which I did play a little bit of because it's Final Fantasy and that's my jam. Um, But yes, I think I do in the field that I work in, I have some kind of obligation to at least be aware uh, of of what's going on. But I haven't really sat down to like play through a game in a long time, maybe Final Fantasy XII. That's embarrassing, but true. (laughs) That's going back a ways. That's a way. A long time ago. Oh, no, he's Googling it. I am. I am. Uh, It came out, oh, 14 years ago. Yeah, gosh, time flies. Time flies. (laughs) I mean, I played a lot of Animal Crossing during quarantine. Like, I probably could have played a Final Fantasy with the amount of hours I've put into Animal Crossing. I have found that when video games become an obligation and you you feel like you should or have to play something, that takes a lot of the fun out of it. It does, which is why I, I watch a lot of streamers. Um, there's a lot of streamers that I really enjoy watching, and that that helps keep me hip with the kids, Ken. <laughs> I, I probably spend more time reading about video games mm-hmm. and listening to podcasts about video games than I do playing them yeah, because I feel like that's an effective way to get a summary of the game. Like I've never played, to be honest, like an Assassin's Creed, a Bioshock, mm-hmm. a Mass Effect, a Grand Theft Auto, a, De- a Red Dead Redemption. But I got, and I'm not going to pretend that I know these games as well as people who have played them, but I have a pretty good idea of what they're about. Yes. And I guess I do. I should caveat this with um, my husband, who funnily enough, lives in the same house as me, but tends to have much more time to play video games. Um, 
I have had a lot of time to watch him play the Grand Theft Autos and the Red Dead Redemptions. And any game where someone chases you, I'm already out. That is not the kind of game I like to play. But I do like watching other people play them. So maybe, I mean, Final Fantasy XII is probably the last one I played through. But I've, you know, witnessed the playing of other more recent cooler games. If you're not a fan of being chased, I guess you're not a fan of, say, Resident Evil or Silent Hill. No, no, I no, I don't like no. <laughs> I don't like jump scares. <laughs> I don't like I don't like being chased. Like I play GTA. I enjoy the open world of Grand Theft Auto, but as soon as I get like three cop stars, that's it. Like I'm giving it to my husband. I get too scared. I like crash into things. It's terrible. I would watch a Twitch stream of you playing Silent Hill. Oh, gosh, I, I should put that up for auction because it would be hilarious. <laughs> yeah, for, charity. for charity. Think of the children, Rachel. Oh my gosh. I mean, they're there. Yeah, that would be entertaining. <laughs> So you sort of already answered this, but I got to ask, what is the best Final Fantasy and why is it six? Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. It is six. Six, six has the best characters for me. And for me, role-playing games are all about the attachment that you have with their characters and their relationships. And six has wonderful music. I'm going to age myself, but I don't even care because I love six that much. I remember filling out the little paper form in the back of the SNES to like order the soundtrack by mail. That's how much I love Final Fantasy VI. I have the three CD set as well. See? Oh, we're kindred spirits. You know, <laughs> you, you can't go wrong. I think it, it was made also in the era where people, you know, didn't care so much about it being mainstream or following a certain mold. Like you have the opera scene, right? Which is relatively not totally related at all to the main storyline, but like everyone remembers it. It just being like such a good component of the game. It's the best. What about the world of ruin, the back half of the game though, where it suddenly goes from being a very linear experience to being open world. Do you feel that those two halves of the game equal in quality? I do. Um, I, I do like the world of ruin. I like that it splits the party up. And it kind of makes you feel like you're starting back from scratch. The one, it's not a complaint about Final Fantasy VI. I, again, think it's what makes it so compelling is that in the end, you don't really win. <laughs> right? I mean, in the end, the allies lose. You mean in the world of balance? Yeah. Well, no, the world gets destroyed. Yeah. Right, but that, but right, but eventually they do defeat Kefka. I mean, that is the happy ending. Well, yes, okay. Fine. I guess it's happy in the end. But I mean, if, if you think about it, games don't usually, there's not usually that midpoint, right? There's not usually that, oh, wow, we totally lost. And now we're all scattered across the world. Can you think of another example where that happens? Not even in a Final Fantasy, I can't think of. No, not really. I mean, there are certainly games where you think you're done and then the rest of the game opens up. Like Zelda yeah. 3, you're fighting the final villain and all of a sudden you get sent to the dark world and you realize you've only scratched That's the surface. True. That's true. But that's not the world being destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. True. Also, I have to mention that Kefka is the best and the worst villain. He's the best because he's like a creepy clown and it doesn't get scarier than that. Um, but I talk a lot with uh, Dr. Kelly Dunlap, who's a, who's a lecturer at American University, about how Kefka is actually a really terrible villain because his only motivation is that he's quote unquote crazy. Right. And that just motivates everything, which I you never really think about that when you're playing. You just think like, oh my god, this scary clown. But if he were, I mean, okay, well, first of all, if 
that is the only reason he's evil is that he may have some sort of a mental health issue. You're right. That is not a good reason to be a villain. <laughs> no, no, it's terrible. It's terrible, <laughs> right? Yeah. But on the other hand, if he were more well-rounded, he might be more empathetic and thus less mm-hmm. villainous. That's true. That is a fair point, Ken. I give you that one. In one of your videos, you mentioned that Final Fantasy offers worlds we can get lost in, and we were talking about escapism, but you also said they might also offer worlds where we can find ourselves. Can you talk a little bit more about that latter aspect of escapism, where you you don't escape, but you find, or maybe do both? I find that role-playing games are really great for reflecting different aspects of yourself and the different characters. So Final Fantasy is a great example. There's always ensemble casts. And there's always a quality or a character that resonates with you more than the rest, right? So for me in Final Fantasy VI, it was Celis. Like, I don't totally resonate with everything in her storyline, but there was just something about her. I just felt for her that she was kind of an outsider and she didn't really know where she belonged. And I think that role-playing games that leave enough of a vagueness in the storyline really allow the player to kind of imprint themselves to use a word but from psychology, I want to say a word from the Twilight series because for some reason that's on my mind. Imprint on, on the characters that they get to play. <laughs> what a weird reference. And sadly, one that I got. See, okay, good. It's a, <laughs> good. I was like, no, wait, that is actually a classic psychology term. It is, it is. Yeah. Do you find that the ability to find yourself in a role-playing game is influenced by whether you're playing a pre-made character that the narrative hands to you as opposed to creating your own creating your own characters was especially common in the early days of crpgs where there wasn't the technology for a strong narrative so you had games like wizardry and ultima and nox archaeus where you're creating a party from scratch and we've kind of seen it come back around with games like mass effect and cyberpunk 2077 Mm-hmm. Do you find that those games offer a different experience or opportunity than a quote unquote more traditional RPG? I do think so. Um, I think there's kind of two two points to that. The first is in a more traditional RPG, it also depends on the characters themselves. So for instance, um, Link and the Legend of Zelda is a really good example because that character is a relatively blank slate. They're androgynous looking. They don't actually speak, right? And all of those features allow the player to kind of, again, imprint themselves more on the character than, say, like, Celis, who has, like, a set look and a a set story and and whatever from Final Fantasy VI. But being able to create your own character greatly enhances the ability to relate to the character if for no other reason it gives the opportunity for greater representation of people and genders and ethnicities and backgrounds in games, which is something the game industry still struggles with, with creating. So being able to create your own character that looks like you and uses the same pronouns as you and has the same hairstyle as you is incredibly powerful. And as we've seen with cyberpunk, it can still present issues even when it lets you create your own character. Yeah. There's, we can talk all day about that one, <laughs> shall we should we i mean i haven't played it i haven't played it i have like you mentioned earlier i have read a lot of articles um about the problematic side so i don't want to give like too much of a one-sided just like talking bad about it but there have been a lot of concerns let's say about cyberpunk what i've read is that cyberpunk is very consistent with the studio's games so, so we have a we have a slack at take this and i was like 
we should be blah, blah, blah. And they were like, no, I think that's just the kind of games they want to make. I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll get off my soapbox. In one of your videos, you said that all roads and game studies lead to MMOs. And that includes Final Fantasy because there are MMOs yeah. in there. And yeah. I want to know, is that true? Why do all game studies roads lead to MMOs? Because game studies as an academic discipline would not have existed if EverQuest did not get released. Like Really? It all traces back to that one game. Yes. So the, the origins of game studies came out of EverQuest and parental concern and general concern about the amount of time that people were investing in EverQuest. And I know there were MUDs and MMOs like that predated it, but that was really the one that kind of made it like a little bit more mainstream. And then right after that came World of Warcraft. And when I was doing my master's and seeing the clients, it was the height of World of Warcraft. So everything was about World of Warcraft. And when I would go to get information for the parents, this is like right when I decided to do a research career and people are saying, oh, are these games like ruining my children? There was maybe three articles published about the impact of games and they were all about EverQuest. And then following that, we had about five years of game studies all about World of Warcraft. And if you look today at the games, game study stuff, it's far more diverse now. We do see a lot more different studies focusing on different populations, but MMOs is still very, very strongly represented in game studies. One component of that is the social interaction, but there are other mm -hmm. online games, like even back in the day of EverQuest, we had people playing Doom and Quake online. Mm -hmm. So yes. what is it about RPGs, which MMOs generally are, that is that unique intersection that inspires so much academic study? I think it's the persistent world. I think it was really the shift into a world that evolves when you're not playing it, because it really gave players the motivation to be engaged, you know, at different hours, at all hours. And then it's also, as you mentioned, it's also connected. So you could log on at 2 a.m. and someone else that, you know, in your guild, you know, would be playing. So it's different. It's my understanding. I didn't play Quake. Uh, my computers weren't good enough back in those days. But it's my understanding that people would play Quake, not like necessarily in a pickup group, but they would have their groups that they would get together and play with. And I feel like EverQuest really kind of opened the doors to here is a world that's going to change if I'm not playing in it. But there's thousands of other people playing and I can log on at any time and play with whoever and make progress and feel like I'm not missing out on something. Because the, the real concern from parents was exactly that. They're playing all areas, all times of the night with people that they don't know. That was really kind of the two main concerns. And do you have any personal experience with this? For example, I read Felicia Day's book and she talks mm -hmm. about how she was unhealthfully addicted to World of Warcraft. I've never been much of a computer gamer, at least not since the late 80s. So I have very little experience with MMOs myself. Although I did play a lot of MUDs, which you mentioned, back when they were very expensive and had hourly fees. Mm -hmm. uh, so I can see some of the negative repercussions of online gaming, and especially with mm -hmm. those persistent worlds where you're interacting with other people. What has been your jam? I played a lot of World of Warcraft. Oh, man, so much World of Warcraft. And <laughs> I played all through undergrad. I played all through my master's program. The straw that broke the camel's back was my PhD program. I had no time. I could not play it anymore. Um, but as I was doing, as I mentioned before, during my master's program, I was seeing parents and like the third, fourth, fifth person who was like, my child plays World of Warcraft and I think that it is causing some kind of irreparable harm. 
I finally was like, oh my God, am I doing something to myself <laughs> that is irreparable from playing so much World of Warcraft? I was like end level rating. I was playing four or five nights a week, four or five hours at a time. Like I was really heavily invested in World of Warcraft for multiple years. Um, but when I started my PhD, I, I stopped and really didn't have time for anything after that. Were you Horde or Alliance? Alliance. I like to follow <laughs> the rules. I find it really hard to make decisions in video games that I wouldn't make in real life. Right? I know. And some people play the opposite. It's so funny when you look at play patterns. There's like two kinds of people in this world. There's us and there's them. There's the people who play and like and make decisions and moral decisions the way that they would in everyday life. And there's the people who just do the opposite. Like I want to raise havoc and I want to do all the things I wouldn't normally. It's somewhat limiting to be like us because I play games like Firewatch and Life is Strange and The Walking Dead. I know mm -hmm. there are all these different branching narratives and all mm -hmm. these lines of dialogue that I will never see in here because I <laughs> have to make the same decision every time. I know, I know, but you know, whatever makes us happy, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> I guess being a goody two-shoes makes us happy. Yes, it does. You co-authored the chapter of a book. The chapter was Party, Animal, or Dinner for One, Are Online Gamers Socially Inept? Which ties mm -hmm. into our talk about World of Warcraft. And this is something I imagine we've seen a lot more of during a pandemic, which is online gaming, because we can't socialize in person like we used to. Do you think that the pandemic will correlate with a decline in social skills or have video games filled that gap and maybe even given people more opportunities than we have before? The, the latter. So when I, that book chapter is based off some of the work I did for my thesis, for my PhD, which was very specifically looking at that idea that gamers are socially inept, that does playing online games, communicating through this channel that has less social cues than a face-to-face -face communication would, just inevitably because it's mediated through a computer, does that lead to an atrophy of traditional social skills? Because you could argue that it's helping foster, you know, 21st century social skills like multi-threading and communicating in gifts or whatever it might be. But how does it impact our ability to traditionally socialize? The things like reading nonverbal cues, right, or giving off nonverbal cues. And in the series of studies I did for my thesis, there was no significant difference in social skills, social ability between people who played online games, people who played offline games exclusively, and people who did not play any video games at all. So I'm not so concerned about the atrophying of skills. What I'm excited about with COVID um, besides the fact it's horrible and I wish it wasn't here, let's just throw that out there. But <laughs> in terms of what it's done for video games, is it has helped shown what great social tools they can be. And for people who've been playing games for decades, for people like me who played World of Warcraft in the height of its popularity, we already knew this. We knew that games were incredibly social and a great way to foster friendships with people all over the world or to you know, further foster friendships from the people down the street. And now that games became our last kind of standing, fun, socially connecting, safe from six feet away thing we could do, I think more people are finally realizing that. So what is the world going to look like for those people when we go back to quote unquote normalcy, when we can interact in person again? Are we just going to not partake of that option now that we have all these online social skills? 
I mean, I think I can I can speak for myself when I say I would still play the games like I've been playing, but gosh, I would like to go to an in-person conference. <laughs> One more Zoom conference. I'm not sure I have it in me. I think that things will return back to more normalcy. People still need physical closeness and, and traditional interaction. And we always have. Like games have never been a full substitute for traditional social interaction. But I hope, I really hope with my fingers crossed that this helps us get over the hump of the moral panic around video games. You mentioned that was your specialty and I and I have a video about it on YouTube. We've been fighting the moral panic about games for 50 years. And now if you look at the kind of news coverage we've been seeing about games since March, it's skewed far more positively. We're not seeing things about gaming addiction. We're not seeing concerns about video game violence. We're seeing stories about how Animal Crossing are bringing families together. Right. So I hope that at least when things go back to normal, that the narrative, the shift that we've seen and how games are talked about in the media will stay. Fingers crossed. Can you give us a quick elevator pitch of what a moral panic is? Sure. Um, a moral panic is an irrational fear of, of a new technology that's just based on the idea that it's of the unknown. So first it was, you know, movies. Movies are going to ruin a generation because they're portraying smoking and dancing and that's all bad. And then it was, oh, Elvis. Elvis is shaking his hips and that is going to sexualize all of our teenagers and oh my God, we can't have it. Um, and then comic books and Dungeons and Dragons and then video games. So it's just an irrational fear that is not based by any research or science, but mostly based on the fact that it's something new. Yeah, you named the exact four chapters of my book, which were oh, rock and roll, comic books, <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons, and video games. I didn't cover there movies. There you go, movies, and then, you know, telephone, the telephone. Oh, my goodness, don't get me started on that. And writing. If we write everything down, we won't have to remember it. You know, that's, that's my favorite. Or crossword puzzles. There's a famous little article you can find about crossword puzzles might make women literate. And oh, that no. would be the end. Yeah. <laughs> and look what happened. Oh, uh, no. We got a doctor coming into the White House. I don't believe it. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> You, you mentioned that it's often over a new technology, but then you also said we've been fighting the moral panic over video games for 50 years. So when does a new technology stop being new? I mean, when VR becomes popularized, it'll take over. I mean, I think it's just because games have just become better and better and better, right? There hasn't been a new technology to take over. But um, I think that VR is really every year we get a little bit closer to being more affordable and more accessible and, and and more popular. So, I mean, although now we are seeing it shift a little because there's a lot of let's pin this on the iPhones, right? Yeah, smart devices and screen time and children growing up yeah. staring at them. I mean, children have always stared at screens ever since we had televisions, but now that they're interactive, they're perhaps even more, dare I say it, addictive. That's what people would say. That's not what <laughs> I would say, <laughs> but that's what people would say. Yep. You have a much more accurate vocabulary in this area than I do. What would you say? Screens are very engaging and they're designed to be like, that's the point of them. And I, I would really like to see, you know, 20 years from now, the research about children who grew up using educational applications on their tablets, which is primarily what young children are doing on their screens. You know, my five-year-old's not scrolling Facebook. My five-year-old is playing Minecraft and learning how to spell. Right. So if we compare you know, educational goals between people who grew up using these tablets and people who didn't, I would not be surprised if you would see a significant difference 
with the people who had the tablets being more um, advanced or hitting greater goals faster because these devices are engaging. And that's why games are great because our kids want to play them and they make learning fun. I mean, we've come a long way from Math Blaster, which is what I played, which was not fun. You don't like Math Blaster or Number Crunchers? Oh man, Math Blaster was just like equations on the screen. The stuff that my daughter has now is like actual games. <laughs> like she's going through worlds and there's robots. And I'm like, wow, I wish. <laughs> you know, I was reading Ali Broch's book last night, Solutions and Other Problems. One of her chapters, she says that for millennia, humans were really good at distinguishing between animate and inanimate objects. Mm. And there's just a simple litmus test. If, if it's trying to interact with you, it's an animate object. Mm -hmm. And now with smart devices, that's no longer the case because our phones are always talking to us and lighting up even if we're not near them. Right. And that's engaging, right? So maybe our, you know, our hind brain is telling us this is something that I should be interacting with and it's motivating and it's, yeah. Right. My five-year-old definitely has a tablet, but I will say um, I'm on a, I'm on a wellness working group for the global esports uh, federation. And there's a, another member on the group. He's a neuro ophthalmologist and his concern, and he said it multiple times and I've never thought about it, but it's so interesting is that everybody is becoming nearsighted because we have been looking at screens for a long time, but not so close to our faces. And he is actually seeing a trend and he, he said something in like 50 years, like most of the population will be nearsighted because of the way that the lenses of their eyes are focusing, you know, only a few feet from their face. So huh. fun fact. And I wonder if that also correlates more broadly with a move from hunters to gatherers, because we no longer need to look out on the range or on the horizon yeah. to see not only what we're trying to hunt, but what's trying to hunt us. Right. That's a great point. And, and he actually said, you know, people say, there's a 20-20 rule, like for every 20 minutes of looking at a screen, you should look away for 20 seconds. And he was like, actually, it should be a 20-20-20 rule because you should be looking 20 feet away. And that was exactly the point. You need to be focusing on long distance. You need to like refocus your lenses just like a camera to like stop the, you know, the tiredness and, and the atrophy of looking, having your lens focused so close up. So I bet it is related. Huh. I had not thought of that. Now I need, I'm looking around my office now trying to figure out what can I set up to look at 20 feet away? 20 feet away. I know that's what, that was my question. And he was like, oh, well, it's just like, like, look out the window. He's like, just don't look like down at your mouse, right? Because that's still your lens focusing on something close up. You need to look like into the distance. I have a utility on my Mac that basically locks me out of my computer every 20 minutes to encourage me to get up, drink, walk around, whatever. Oh, I got to tell you, it's tempting every 20 minutes to just grab my phone and see what's going on there. See, that defeats the purpose, Ken. No. <laughs> <laughs> you will be nearsighted very soon. Yes. I already am. I know this. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> the, dam the damage has long been done. All right. <laughs> but, you know, something I, before there were even video games, I would spend so much time looking very closely in my hands at a book. I love yeah. to read. I still do. Unfortunately, with the pandemic and the state of libraries, it's moved to ebooks. So I'm still staring at a screen, but I am still reading books. And in one of your videos, you said something that I have to assume was tongue in cheek. You said nobody has ever had anything bad to say about escaping into a good book compared to video games. Mm -hmm. That that can't be true. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, I think um, anecdotally it's true because if you think about the way escapism, we talk about escapism in games, it's always framed negatively. You're escaping into games. You're escaping the real world. You're leaving your lives and you're going into this fantasy world. 
But the phrase escape into a good book, that has a very positive connotation. Oh, it's taking you to faraway worlds and you get to experience different lives. Well, that's the same darn thing, isn't it? In a sense, yes. But I think it also depends on what kind of book you're escaping into. I think that, at least in my experience, for example, fantasy and science fiction can often be looked down upon as, uh, and maybe that's not talking about the same thing, but at least I know a lot of kids were made fun of for reading books instead of playing sports. And even if you look at mm. the Disney movie Beauty and the Beast, Belle was that weird one who walked around town reading a book. That is a good point. She is my favorite Disney princess. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, maybe in comparison, uh, not the Belle example, but children who read fantasy books compared to other books, I, I can totally see that being as kind of more of like an outcast genre of books to be reading. But if you ask a parent, do you want your kids to read Lord of the Rings or do you want them to play Skyrim? Guaranteed, they'd say, read Lord of the Rings. That's true. That's true. Now, I have a friend who bought his child a Nintendo Switch, which I thought was awesome. And a month later, I asked him, how's your kid like the Switch? And he said, they won't touch it. They just want to read books. Well, you know, it's funny because my five-year-old loves Minecraft. Oh, my gosh. She loves Minecraft. She'd play it all day if I let her. And I have a a second tablet for my three-year-old that we got him for Christmas last year. No interest. Zero. Will not play it. He looked at it once and, like, it's sitting in a corner. So it it is, like, to each their own, right? Mm -hmm. Do you set up screen time for your kids? I don't like structure screen time necessarily for my kids. Um, I have like this home. Now I have a homeschool program. They used to go to school, but because of COVID, they are not. Um, So my daughter does like work in the morning. And then afterwards, after all her work is done, she can play Minecraft if she wants, which she 99% of the time chooses to do. But after every 20 minutes, she has to take a break. And we do other things like crafts and go for walks when it's not like brutally cold. I do live in Canada. but yeah, she definitely has screen time. I would say every day. She has screen time every day. But she also likes books? She loves books. My daughter, Shel Silverstein, she has like, I swear that book, uh, Light in the Attic, is memorized. Like she loves, loves, loves books. Awesome. And you have written or and produced many books that we talked about in the psychology field, but also you created the book Pragmatic Princess. Is that correct? I did. My passion project, yes. <laughs> What is this and what inspired you to create it? Pragmatic Princess is an A to Z storybook celebrating everyday everyday girls doing everyday things with their everyday abilities. And my daughter inspired it. I wrote it a couple of years ago because she loves books. And I ended up getting like a whole bunch of books that a a teacher retired and she put like her hoard of books on Facebook. And I went, I bought them all for like a dollar each. So every night we were reading a different book. And some were better than others, but I noticed that if they had a female main character, nine out of 10 times, they were a superhero or they didn't save the day on their own. There was someone else, like a a male character almost always who came to save the day. There were so many stories with like animal characters, which is like fine. But I was like, where are the books that just celebrate the things that girls can do that they don't need superpowers for? So that was really an original inspiration. And I wanted a book that had a diverse characters of girls. Like where are the people from non-traditional families, right? Why does it have to be the book like 
girl who grows up with grandma. Like, why can't it just be a girl who has a grandma as a parental figure and it's not part of the story? It's just, like, in the background. Like, it's not the center of the story. Why are there no more disabled children in stories? So, yeah. So, I was frustrated, Ken. I was frustrated <laughs> with the state of, of it all. And so, I originally set out. I contacted a publisher friend of mine, and I was like, you write books. You should write this book. And she was like, well, it seems to be your idea. Maybe you should write this book. And I was like, I don't write kids' books. I write science books. And she was like, give it a go. And um, I guess she was right because then I wrote it. (laughs) That's wonderful. And it came out last year. Is that correct? It did come out last year. It was kickstarted. It raised uh, $26,000 in 30 days. Wow. Um, I know. It was pretty fantastic. And so it came out just before Christmas last year. And how's the reception been? It's been so good. And and it's hard being an independent author, especially um, with Kickstarter, because you don't have the exposure, right? People don't know that your product exists. But it's from the people who know it exists. I've heard teachers saying they integrate it into their classrooms for like their social emotional component. Or I have parents who are saying, oh, my gosh, my daughter is mixed race. And she's never seen a character, you know, in a book that that looks like her. And it's really just been so, so wonderful. So it being kickstarted, does that mean it's also self-published and you don't have somebody marketing it for you and distributing it for you? That is correct. So it is a one Rachel show. Um, I, I have, I have um, the books are for sale on Amazon.com and Amazon.ca because I raised enough to print 2,500 copies. So there are still a thousand-ish copies out into the world. But after that, that's just, that's it. It exists in just that form. So, Did I see a tweet saying that you're looking for a publisher to help you get wider exposure? I am looking for a publisher. So I created this universe. It's 26 stories. There's 26 characters. And I really, my original pitch for this collection was I wanted like a modern Berenstein Bears. I loved the Berenstein Bears. I loved them when I was a kid. And I have them for my kids now. But, you know, like, for instance, the Stranger Danger story. It's like a guy in the bushes with, like, a, you know, remote control airplane. Like, hey, Sonny, come play with my, you know, remote control airplane. I remember that book. Yes. <laughs> right? And so it's like, wouldn't it be nice <laughs> to have, like, a modern Berenstein Bears? So thinking of The Pragmatic Princess as kind of like a character book, like a character development, I've since written other topical stories like online stranger danger is one. And so I'm looking for a publisher to kind of bring this universe to life with the idea of being pragmatic princess is already published. I understand that, but you know, taking those characters and moving forward with short kind of topical stories. Cool. If people want to learn more about this book or even order a copy, where would they do that? Yes. You can go to buildyourowncastle.com because uh, a girl doesn't need a prince for a castle. She can build her own. I love it. And I understand you're working on another project that you describe as Carmen Sandiego with pugs. Oh, yes. So, you know, the first book in Pragmatic Princess is Ava the Adventuress. Every story is a name with an adjective. And she has a pug who was modeled after my first pug. Um, And she wants to go on adventures. Her whole story is that she wants to sail far away and she wants to see different lands and um, so I also loved Carmen San Diego and obviously video games. So working with Dr. Kelly Dunlap, who I mentioned earlier, she's also a game designer and Randall Hampton, who illustrated Pragmatic Princess. We have created a single story kind of Carmen San Diego inspired adventure about Ava 
and her pug going on an adventure and, and it's a kind of a point and click game and you have to in the end guess where she is on her adventure based on your choices but you see ken spoiler if uh. you make the good choices you get more clues about where you are and if you make poor choices like if the dog chooses to eat the sausage roll off the ground you don't get as good <laughs> of an ending so you're saying the game's designed for people like you and me maybe <laughs> maybe <laughs> Well, you have to be your own primary audience. If you, you don't want to make a game that you're not going to play. Well, you know, that's true. And everyone loves a pug. Everyone loves a pug. And and it's really, yeah, I wanted there to be choices. And everyone likes games. I feel like everyone likes games where the choices have an impact, right? You don't want to feel like your choices have no impact on the outcome of the game. So you get to make choices as the dog, whether the dog is naughty or the dog is obedient. Um, and depending on that, you'll get more clues or less clues about where you are. And when will we get to play this game? Oh, man, I was really hoping by the end of the year. All the art is done. Um, much more probably is going to be January. Does it have a website? Um, it does not, but it will also be up on uh, buildyourowncastle.com. Excellent. We will keep an eye out there. So we've talked about a lot of the different things you've worked on. And I know we're coming up on time, but I want to leave a little bit of time to talk about Take This, which has been featured on this podcast several times. Susan Arndt and Russ Pitts, two of the co-founders, have been guests on the show. But for those who have not listened to those episodes, can you briefly summarize what is Take This? Of course. Take This is the first mental health nonprofit to form, servicing the gaming industry and the gaming community. So we aim to destigmatize mental health challenges and also provide mental health information and resources specifically tailored to the gaming community. And one of the ways that you've historically done that is by providing the AFK room, the away from keyboard room found at conventions like PAX, which is a quiet space where people can just detach from the overloading stimuli that is an event of 70,000 people, that is PAX, <laughs> and also find licensed therapists to talk to if they need to get some immediate help. With PAX not being a thing during the pandemic, with conventions not being a thing during the pandemic, what sort of other outreach has Take This been able to offer? We were able, we started our own Discord um, that anybody can join, which is an inclusive space that is, you know, mental health positive. We're, we're very um, encouraging and welcoming to all there. And we hosted an online AFK room for PAX Online. So PAX condensed all of its conventions into like a seven day, 24 hour a day event, which was wild. Um, and, and we hosted an online AFK room for that. Um, event. And we have since moved on and adapted with the times and we are hosting other online AFK rooms for other events um, like MomoCon coming up and, and other ones in 2021. We're also starting streaming in 2021. We're going to do some more community uh, engagement and outreach there. So that's very exciting. What is an online AFK room like? <laughs> um, it is like a really busy Discord, but it also has a channel, you know, staff with clinicians. It was 24 hour because the event was 24 hour. There was 24 hour clinicians available if you needed immediate help um, and or, you know, be pointed in the direction of resources. And yeah, it was just like a really big Discord party. Basically. That's awesome. I was trying to figure it out because... The AFK room is normally so quiet, and so would the equivalent just be a Discord room where nobody talks? Well, no, not where nobody talks, but if you were in the PAX Discord, the Take This Discord was quiet. 
Because gotcha. Axe Discord, the screen scrolled so fast you couldn't even read what was going on. It was funny because during packs, people would come to the Take This Discord and they would go to the Take This AFK room um, in the in the Discord and they would be like, "Oh, thank goodness!" <laughs> it was the same <laughs> kind of. It's like at a packs, you always see someone sit down and they go, "Ah," and they take a you know a decompressing breath. That's how the AFK room makes you feel, and that is how the Discord was in comparison. So it was really great. Awesome. I I did not attend PAX Online. I have been to every PAX East that's been held. How did PAX Online go? PAX Online was wonderful. You know, it's hard. There's pluses and minuses to virtual conferences. I really enjoyed it because I was able to be on panels with people who I wouldn't normally be able to be on panels with. For instance, people who live in Europe who wouldn't travel right for PAX West necessarily. And so I think virtual panels are great in that way and being able to bring together different groups of people, but virtual conferences, you know, like zoom fatigue is real. Like you can only stare at a screen for so many hours in a day. And a lot of the reason I go to PAX is to see my friends. It's like my friend reunion. And you didn't get that obviously because we're quarantined and in COVID. I think it was generally, it was the best they could have done with what they had for sure. What do you think the prospects are for PAX East 2021 in June? Zero. <laughs> I won't be there. Yeah. I won't be there. No way. I mean, I'm not, I don't know if they're going to host it or not. I know they announced that they're going to host it. Um, I'm also five months pregnant, so I, I won't be there because I'll have a new one. Oh. Um, that did not come up in my preparation for this interview. Congratulations. Well, I don't think. Thank you. I'm not sure I talk about it too much. Um, thank you. But I think that 2021 for any in-person mass conference, like you said, 70,000 people, it's just um, unreasonable, I think. I don't think it'll happen. The questions you brought up are twofold. One is, will the event be held? They have announced that it is, but they also said Mm -hmm. that they're realistic, that they may need to cancel. And the other half you mentioned is, even if it is held, will people go? Because they need to have been vaccinated. And not that they're going to like check that at the door, but you really should be. Yeah. And not everybody is going to have had access to a vaccine by then. And well, yeah. So here in Canada, um, which we have far less people than you do in the United States, they said mass vaccinations, like for people, like average people, is not going to happen until the fall because they have to do all the frontline workers. They're giving priority to people who live in long-term care homes, and there's just not enough. There's just not enough to be produced to go around, you know, that quickly. And they might check if you're vaccinated at the door because I heard there's going to be like a vaccine passport basically like you can't fly on a plane unless you can prove you've had this vaccine which i think is honestly reasonable (laughs) i think but i don't know we might see like prove that you've been vaccinated before you can come into this convention hall of seventy thousand people so we don't have another outbreak wow that is really interesting about the passport i can see how that would target certain demographics more than others that's that is an issue that is an issue but you i don't i don't know what the correct answer is but I do know that there is zero chance that I will go into a convention center with 70,000 people with, if there's any possibility that there's going to be a spread. Of, of right. COVID, right. Have you been to PAX East before? I have been to PAX East, yes. Did you go to the 2020 event? I did. So I was there too. And you saw them wiping down surfaces, handing out hand sanitizer everywhere. I can't believe in hindsight that we got away with it, that that event if we knew then what we know now should have been canceled. It wouldn't have happened. Absolutely. And I think that because it had just come to the States, right? And I think even Boston, which is terrifying. But I remember nobody knew 
how bad it was. But I, my friend, Dr. Sarah Sawyer, she's um, a good friend of mine. We would see other people shake hands and we would sanitize our hands. Like we were not playing, like we were not messing around, but we didn't, we weren't wearing masks, right? We were still hugging people. Like we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. I remember one of my, I was moderating a panel and one of my panelists at almost the last minute dropped out because they didn't want to come to PAX when there was a pandemic or when there was this coronavirus. And at the time I thought that that was an exaggerated response. And in hindsight, that person did exactly the right thing. I know. I know. Well, now we know. Now we know much more than we knew back then. Yeah. Yeah. There's a convention I go to every year. It's about 120 people in July in Kansas City. And I'm kind of hoping it's canceled too, because even that seems ambitious. I mean, even just getting on a plane with recycled air. Like I, I obviously miss my friends very much. I'm very good friends with my neighbors and my neighbors are like, do you want to come over for dinner? And I'm like, no, like, yeah, <laughs> but no, <laughs> like, right. I'm just going to stay here until it's all figured out. I hope you at least have family nearby that you can see from a front yard or something. Uh, I do not. <laughs> I'm uh, originally from Texas. We live in Canada, but uh, we live in Canada now, but it's okay. I mean, I have Two children. They keep me busy. That's a big shift, Texas to Canada. It is, but I enjoy um, being away from the heat. For <laughs> sure. I like the four seasons of Canada. Uh, my husband moved here because of a job, but I absolutely love it. I'm never leaving. You'll have to drag me out of here. I imagine that the last four years, you've probably been glad to be there. Well, I'm, I've only been here two years, so I can tell you when I arrived, I was very happy. I was very happy to have arrived. <laughs> I'm sure there are many people who wish they could have joined you. I, I believe that. I feel very grateful to be here. And and you know what, though? I will say, you know, all my family's back in the States, but my family is from Texas. So, Yeah. I'm glad I wasn't there. <laughs> they're, they're not necessarily on the same side as I am. Gotcha. I hear that. <laughs> well, we have covered so many topics in the last hour, from books to video games to research, just YouTube channels. Is there anything else you want to talk about today? I mean, I feel like we've given my life story. You know, I like Final <laughs> Fantasy. I haven't played games in ages. Uh, Animal Crossing is the is saved us during COVID-19. Um yeah, I think we've, we've pretty much covered it all, I'd say, Ken. Awesome. So remind our listeners where they can find you online. Yes, you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Cowart, D-R-K-O-W-E-R-T, and on YouTube as Psychgeist. And, oh, and my website is rcowart.com. Awesome. Well, Dr. Rachel Cowart, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. Although there is one question I didn't get to ask you, which is where's the love for Final Fantasy IV? Okay, here's the thing. I love Final Fantasy IV. I have played every single Final Fantasy, not the MMOs, every single Final Fantasy until 15. 15 is the one where I had kids already and I just like didn't have time. I love them all. 
I love them all so much. But if I had to rank them, if you like force me, it would be six, seven, ten. Wow, six, seven, ten. Yeah. But you know, Cloud, Broody Cloud was like my teenage years. Like Broody Cloud has to be number two. But and and 10, when the voice acting, I remember just like unboxing 10 and plugging it in and being like, oh my God, mm-hmm. the game is so different now. So I guess four is number two for you. Was it six, four? I think four is number one. Oh, four is really good. I mean, have you read um, the book Video Games and Wellbeing came out in January of this year? And there's a chapter written by Dr. B, the clinical director of Take This. Mm-hmm. about resilience and throughout the whole chapter he weaves the stories from final fantasy 4. Um, Ooh, i need to look that up but you said six was the best ken you said it in your question <sighs> you said six was the best i was i was incorporating your answer into the question okay okay so you said four is number one no i, I love six i i remember listening to that soundtrack cd set as a kid you oh. know my older brothers were listening to van halen and <laughs> Kiss, and I'm listening to Final Fantasy. It didn't make me any friends, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I'm sure. But yeah, six is amazing. The characters are memorable. I I love just like all the different stuff that you can find. Even after you finish the game, there's still more to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Final Fantasy four or two, when I played, it was just such a quantum leap from the 8-bit RPGs of Dragon Warrior and the original Final Fantasy, where it actually had a plot and a narrative and spoony bards and giant robots and trips to the moon. I just loved it. Four is great. Dragon Warrior is great too, though. You know, this summer I went back and replayed the original Dragon Warrior and it's still great. It still holds up. Just like, you know, Chrono Trigger. Like every decade I go back and I do Chrono. And it's like, yeah, still good. Still good game. Every decade? That's not often enough. Well, I know. Graduate school. Too much graduate 